0: sick of the fatigue and fog fed up with the unpredictable flares hangry from the super restrictive diets hello and welcome to the crunchy allergist podcast a podcast empowering those who like me appreciate both a naturally minded and scientifically grounded approach to health and healing hi i'm your host dr Kara wada quadruple board certified pediatric and adult allergy immunology and lifestyle medicine physician Sjogren's patient and life coach. My recipe for success combines anti-inflammatory lifestyle, trusting therapeutic relationships, modern medicine, and mindset to harness our body's ability to heal. Now, although I might be a physician, I'm not your physician. And this podcast is for educational purposes only.
1: Welcome everyone. Today, I'm excited to share with you a special episode of the Crunchy Allergist podcast. I recorded this episode during our first annual virtual Sjogren's Summit that took place April 1st and 2nd, 2022. Around 1100 Sjogren's superheroes from over 18 countries and 38 states joined forces last week to kick off the Sjogren's Awareness Month. What is Sjogren's exactly? Sjogren's is a systemic autoimmune disease that commonly causes dry eyes, dry mouth, fatigue, and pain. This condition affects up to one in 100 people, 90% 90% of whom are women, and many who are not aware they even have it. I am a Sjogren's superhero, and one of the symptoms that is commonly shared among shogis and others with misbehaving immune systems are problems with digestion. So today, we are going to dive in and answer many of your burning questions about food allergies, intolerances, and sensitivities. Let's hop in.
0: Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Kara Wada. I am... The person spearheading this event, um, and I had a question asked earlier this week um, about food allergies versus intolerances versus sensitivities, and I had a little extra time over lunch here, and thought I would hop on and share what I all I know about it. Um, I talk about this in the office a lot. Um, it is not uncommon to hear that people have difficulties when they eat particular foods and I love to share kind of how I think about those circumstances and um, so we can dig in. Um, So when we think about how this impacts Sjogren's syndrome, we know that about 90% of patients with Sjogren's have some sort of Gastrointestinal symptoms, whether it is difficulty with trouble swallowing, something I have um, with some frequency, um, with my dry mouth and maybe other um, contributing factors, it's not uncommon for me to have food go down the wrong pipe um, or have a little more trouble kind of getting food down. Heartburn is another issue or reflux. Um, Some people will feel heartburn, other people will not, which is sometimes called silent reflux, and that can contribute um, to hoarseness in the voice sometimes or even um, nasal congestion or feeling like there's something stuck in your throat. Um, And then certainly stomach or abdominal pain, discomfort, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, symptoms suggestive of irritable bowel, and certainly when we think of Sjogren's and autoimmunity, Um, There's always the potential for other autoimmune conditions, and there are several that can affect the GI tract. Um, Most common those include celiac, which is about 1 in 100 patients. That is when the body essentially um, attacks the small bowel when there is gluten also present um, in the diet and So that's one instance. And then another instance would be inflammatory bowel disease, which there are two varieties that we talk about most, Crohn's disease um, and also ulcerative colitis. I'm gonna talk about a few other conditions that I see kind of in the office that have no like direct known um, association with Sjogren's, but certainly if you have one thing, doesn't mean you can't have another. Um, And just to kind of talk through how I think about bad symptoms that happen when we eat particular foods. So when we think about digestion and our GI tract in general, it is one of the main ways that we are exposed to our external environment. The other ways that we're exposed to our external environment are our respiratory tract or the way that we um, get oxygen. Um, So breathing in, so you'll hear from me on Saturday kind of talking about that interface. And then another interface that is really important um, is our skin. So in each area, in each of these areas of our body, we are seeing um, interaction between the external environment, our own cells, and including our immune system cells, and also microbiome. So the different um, bacteria and viruses and fungi that live in and on us. And it really has only been in the last. Uh, mm, decade maybe, that we've really started to tune in to um, this really complex and elegant interplay between all of those different elements. The microbiome was kind of um, not thought much about um, and was really just kind of starting to come into the conversation um, as I was going through my medical training. So it's a really exciting time to learn all about that. But digestion starts in the mouth with our saliva. Um, you'll hear Dr. Jillian talk a little bit about that as well. But it starts when we start chewing food um, and then certainly makes its way down uh, our esophagus into our stomach. There um, it should hopefully be an acidic environment, but sometimes we end up using medications that decrease the acid um, content of our stomach, um, especially if we're dealing with heartburn. And um, then after it has been digested in the stomach, moved to the small intestine, some additional enzymes and other substances are added um, to help continue that digestion process. Um, That's also when we start to see more of the microbiome coming into play, helping break down some of the different sugars, carbohydrates, and other um, proteins and fats that we are digesting. Um, And then as it is making its way through the small intestine, big aspect of that is absorption of nutrients, Um, and then it gets to the large intestine where um, things collect and things solidify a little bit more, Um, so that is where more water is absorbed. And you can imagine if um, what becomes our poop is taking longer to move through this large intestine, then that can lead to more constipation or if things are moving through more quickly, that that could lead to looser stools or diarrhea. All right, so that's kind of the basic overview of how food goes in and comes out. Um, So what are some of the things that patients will talk to me about when they come into the office, um, maybe having symptoms related to particular foods? How I kind of, how my brain is trained to think about things is thinking about what the symptoms are and then also thinking about what could be causing those symptoms to occur um, and trying to think about that in a systematic um, framework so that we're not missing anything. Okay, so the one aspect that um, we see and um, unfortunately had dealt with in our family is what we call true food allergy. So in that situation, the immune system has recognized a particular food typically protein, um, as the enemy. And it creates a protein called IgE protein or IgE antibody, it's allergic antibody. And what happens is when that food protein interacts with that allergy protein, it triggers our allergy cells. Um, Those allergy cells then release substances um, that make um, us potentially throw up have itchy hives, um, trouble breathing, similar to like asthma symptoms, um, and or can pass out or potentially be fatal reactions. There are um, nine foods that we think of that make up majority of these typical, um, or these um, allergic reactions, but certainly there are foods outside of that um, list of nine that patients will have um, allergy to. And we have seen a pretty significant increase in the prevalence of food allergy over the last two decades. And um, I won't dig into that as much as I could because I will otherwise be here for an hour and a half talking about this, um, but there are lots of thoughts on why that's happening. And it's it's not one thing that's changed, it's in all likelihood a combination of things that have really um, resulted in that. But, Um, Those foods we think about that are most common um, with true food allergy are milk, eggs, which is what my daughter Josie was allergic to, wheat, um, peanuts, the tree nuts, so things like almonds, cashews, walnuts, so on and so forth, fish, shellfish, um, soy, and then sesame is the newest one added to the list. Um, Again, other foods will come into play. I definitely have seen more, circumstant- or more um, issues with avocado in recent uh, memory um, that probably in part has to deal with we're eating more avocado than we were probably 10, 15 years ago. Um, so that is true food allergy and that is when allergy testing is helpful to confirm a suspicion for an allergy. So the, the big problem is if someone especially has like sinus allergies or other environmental allergies, um, it's not uncommon to see a person have allergy protein directed towards a particular food, um, either on those scratch tests or blood tests, but true food allergy is the, the clinical situation, so what happens when you eat the food in addition to then that positive test. It has to be those two things. If you only have the positive test, we call that sensitization. It means your immune system has made a response, but it's not causing that actually, you to have those reactions clinically. Like you could eat for instance, um, say you had, we'll pick an example, maybe you have a small amount of um, egg um, allergy protein, um, either a small skin test result where you get a little hive bump or a little um, a small amount on um, food allergy blood testing. But if you're eating eggs fine, like you can eat a muffin with eggs or you can eat scrambled eggs without a problem, then you're not allergic. It's It's those two things together um, that make allergy. What becomes hard, um, especially in little kids, is that sometimes allergy testing, will be done before a kiddo has actually had a particular food. And so that's when um, it can be very nuanced to figure okay, what would maybe be the safest way to see if they tolerate that food? And when might it be safest to, um, to give them that food and see how they do? We have some levels um, for a few foods that kind of give us some um, ability to try to better predict if that will be tolerated or not. Um, we were very fortunate with my daughter Josie that her levels um, were never terribly high. Um, She had um, an episode when she was about nine months old. She had some scrambled eggs. She ended up with um, some hives rashes on her hands and her mouth. Um, And then she ended up throwing up. So that would have been anaphylaxis. We did not have epinephrine at home at the time. Ideally, that would have been the ideal treatment for her. Um, We were able to give her some antihistamine and she ended up doing okay. We watched her at home, but in the perfect situation, she would have gotten epinephrine um, and then been monitored um, because that is the best treatment for a true allergic reaction. Um, And knock on wood, she has outgrown her egg allergy. We were able to give her a supervised um food challenge in her allergist office oh almost a year ago um so she has been able to eat um eggs um since then it's not doesn't love them but she will eat them um, and we're trying to keep that in her diet so that she can have a um a well-balanced diet and try not to have any potential of that allergy coming back all right so that's true allergy Celiac, as I mentioned, is another immune system response, and it is a response um, of the immune system um, in the context of seeing gluten, which is um, found, it's a protein that is found primarily with wheat, um, but also several other grains um, like barley. Um, And essentially the body makes white blood cells or immune system cells that then attack the small bowel which then makes it really challenging for the small bowel to absorb nutrients. Um, And so in about one in 100 people, we will see um, or find signs or symptoms of celiac. Celiac, um, kind of the the main way that that's diagnosed or the gold standard, the best way to diagnose that is through a scope where they look at your small bowel and they get a little piece of the tissue and look at that under the microscope, that's the best way to test for it. But there are some ways to screen for it through blood work. Um, And any of those tests are going to be most accurate if you um, have that testing done while you are still eating gluten. If you've been gluten-free for a period of time, more than two weeks or so, you can see that those tests can become negative over time. And that's actually a good thing overall in that we want to see the body healing as you take gluten out of the diet, but that can be really challenging if you don't have the testing ahead of time because some people um, may not have celiac, but they may not—they may have more of an intolerance to gluten or wheat, which I'll talk about um, in a little bit. And it's really helpful to know that and be able to distinguish um, the difference. So I really encourage people, if you're going to go gluten-free or do a trial of a gluten-free diet, to try to um, get testing, um, at least the blood testing ahead of time so that you kind of know going in if this is going to be maybe celiac or an intolerance type situation. Okay, so those are the kind of main immune system things we think about. There are some other immune system related conditions that we are still trying to um, work through exactly what is going wrong, but these are conditions that I help diagnose um, in my clinic, sometimes with um, the help of gastroenterologists or our stomach or GI doctors, um, and sometimes on our own. One of those conditions is called eosinophilic esophagitis, E-O-E. This is another condition similar to food allergy and autoimmunity that we are seeing kind of go up in its um, prevalence over you know, the last several decades. Um, essentially, eosinophils, we will call allergy white blood cells. There are several types of white blood cells we call allergy white blood cells. That would be one of them. We call them EOs for short because it's easier to say and spell, Um, but those cells should not be found in our food tube or our esophagus. In this case, they are there, and what happens when they are there is that they can cause people to have food get stuck, um, that essentially there's inflammation there, so food does not travel down the esophagus as well. This can be more problematic with um, foods that from a texture standpoint are harder to swallow, like breads, um, like, chicken breast that is cooked too long and other meats um, can um, be a little more problematic sometimes with getting stuck and rice is another one that will come up um, pretty often as well. Um, With um, eosinophilic esophagitis what we believe is happening is that there is um, in many cases foods that are implicated in this Um, but what's frustrating is those scratch tests that we talked about with the true food allergy. Um, They are not very good at predicting which foods are going to be a trigger. What we think is happening is a different type of white blood cell that can make memory is likely involved and we don't have a great way of um, identifying or screening for that at this point in time. So what happens with these patients many times is we have a conversation um, in the office, would you prefer to use medication, would you prefer to use diet or a combination of the two Is your first step in treatment and then if it is dietary um, treatment we talk about doing trial of um, particular elimination um, strategies we know for EOE the biggest culprit that we see is um, milk protein Um, so that would be a situation where we may um, try kind of taking milk out of the diet not only milk but cheese butter yogurt any sort of dairy protein Um, so that's EOE. There's another situation um, that, again, um, that we are seeing with patients um, called FPIs. FPIs is a really long um, acronym which you can Google, um, but essentially what happens for these patients, primarily kiddos, um, is that they will be um, exposed to particular foods? In this case, the the implicated foods tend to be um, milk and soy in real little babies, like that maybe are either breastfed or doing formula or combination of the two. Or as kids get a little older, um, we'll sometimes see this with um, other, um, interestingly, grains or legumes, like different types of peas, beans. Um, and certain vegetables like potato comes up too, like foods that you normally would not think of as a problem. Um, my colleague, her um, little one has a problem with oats. Um, another colleague, um, it's kind of ironic, allergists with uh, all these kids with different food allergy issues, um, but her daughter had issues with rice. Um, but what happens is the kiddo. Or person will ingest that food that is the trigger food and within about like 90 minutes to two hours so this is a little longer out from a a true food allergy which is more immediate these kids will start throwing up and throwing up and throwing up and it is um, profound It, it looks like they have a really terrible stomach bug Um, And with little babies, because they don't have as much reserve, they can look really sick really fast. Um, And so many times what will happen is because there are no rashes or other symptoms, people will think that they have a bad infection. Um, And they'll go to the ER, they'll get fluids, they may get worked up for um, something called sepsis. Um, And it may take, unfortunately, a couple episodes before someone realizes, hey, this is only happening after the kiddo eats their, you know, their cereal or um, their sweet potato little baby food or something along those lines. Um, in adults, this is thought to be less common, but I do have a few patients who've had this happen. One um, has had it with poultry; um, I believe it was chicken. And um, in, in their case, and then I have um, we we know that seafood is another um, food that will come up, um, and you can have reactions in this way as well. Um, and that's something that is described, um, more, more often in the adult population that has this, um, has this F-Pies reaction. Again, another really frustrating aspect to, to carrying and, and teasing out the triggers for this is we don't have good testing in part, um, to identify or confirm, um, the food trigger. It's, um, it's kind of, we determine it through a real in-depth conversation um, with the patient, um, because we're still figuring out the exact mechanism or what immune cells are implicated in causing this robust response that is just saying, get this food out of here. Um, it is not um, It is not welcome here. Um, and so there is a lot of work going on, especially out of Mount Sinai in New York, um, it looking at what exactly is going on, what parts of the immune system are implicated and how can we have better testing modalities to help identify these triggers um, and also know when people are outgrowing. So this is um, thankfully a situation that for little ones, they almost overwhelmingly will outgrow this, um, this type of reaction which is really um, you know always the best case scenario. Okay, let's dig into things that are more common. Um, intolerances are huge. So this is going to be um, many times, um, and, and these are symptoms I have dealt with in, in all sorts of varieties, which I will not dig super into because TMI, but um, bloating, gas, diarrhea, constipation, um, bad, upset stomach. Um, also can include other symptoms like headaches, um, feeling really like after um, eating um, kind of those symptoms that aren't fitting into these other categories can fall into kind of what we consider kind of these intolerances or sensitivities. There are some um, elements um, or types of insensitivities or sorry intolerances that come up pretty often. So it is um, one that you most of you probably have heard of at one time or another is lactose intolerance. So being unable to digest um, the sugar that is found in milk. So what happens in this situation is the lactose um, needs a particular enzyme to break it down that we ourselves as humans don't make, but our gut bugs can make. And what happens is when we're we little babies, and we might be um, drinking mom's milk or um, milk-based formula, we have enough of these gut bugs and the enzyme they produce to break down that lactose. Um, What happens over time though is that those gut bugs stop or decrease the amount of this lactase, that's the enzyme that breaks down lactose, um, that decreases over time um, in vast majority of humans. Um, there are some people who come from Northern European ancestry that will have and maintain um, that lactase um, enzyme for longer, um, but most of us will lose this over time and certain um, Backgrounds may lose it sooner than others. Um, so I joke um, that when I started dating my husband, who is of Japanese background, he has been lactose intolerant. He said he thinks since he was probably in his late teens or early twenties. And so when we started cohabitating um, and buying the same milk, he was buying lactose-free milk at the time. Um, and. I started drinking that, and there's a bit of a like use it or lose it phenomenon, and so I noticed over time that I had less ability to digest lactose, and it may have been just my time of (laughs) losing um, tolerance anyways, but um, what will happen many times for people is that um, ingesting a um, a, a bigger amount of lactose um, will then result in um, bloating, gas, and in many cases, um, some urgency to need to go to the bathroom, looser stools, diarrhea. And in other people, sometimes milk can actually stop things up. And this has kind of been more of my MO, is that if I have too much milk or cheese or lactose kind of situations, and my digestive system pumps the brakes and is not not very happy. Um, so everyone's a little bit different. Um, intolerances also, on the whole, tend to have a dose effect um, aspect to them. So more often people will be able to tolerate small amounts of a particular um, substance and have more difficulty or more symptoms when they're ingesting larger amounts. So in the case of lactose, um, someone may do perfectly fine with like a little Parmesan cheese on top of pasta or something along those lines, but having a big milkshake um, is like game over. So, that's of course the extreme, but that um, is kind of lactose intolerance. What we've realized is that there are other carbohydrates and sugars that have similar properties to lactose um, but aren't lactose. And so there are um, some doctors and researchers out of Monash University down in Australia um, that have done a, a good portion of the work on uh, FODMAPs or FODMAPs, tomato-tomato, um, which are these other fermentable types of sugars that some of us don't digest well. And so those um, fall into different categories, Um, but if you've kind of explored or dealt with these symptoms you may have encountered or come across kind of something called the low FODMAP diet, which essentially um, is a strategy to help identify which of these particular um, food groups may be more problematic. So lactose is one of these FODMAP foods or groups. Um, Another that comes up um, includes gluten. So this is where that gluten sensitivity or intolerance may come into play as well. There also is fructose, which is fruit sugar. Um, also, high fructose corn syrup. <clears throat> Excuse me. Grab my water. Um, can also come into play, so that can be with a lot of like processed foods and sweets, certainly. Um, and then there are um, a few others that fall into this as well. What we realize, though, is that these particular carbohydrates. Um, And these foods also contain a lot of really healthy fiber that can be really beneficial for our microbiome or our gut bugs and help promote um, production of anti-inflammatory substances as well called short chain fatty acids. So we've kind of had the pendulum swing from one side to the other of like, oh, if you have these intolerances, maybe you should pull them all out and eat this low FODMAP FODMAP diet. And really what we're Realizing now is that no, maybe you use that as a tool to help identify better what foods are causing symptoms. But then come up with a plan working with a dietitian or um, someone else who's well versed in this to try to help slowly but surely give those gut bugs a little bit of a workout um, by slowly reintroducing some of these um, different fibers um, into the diet so that you um, have a way of allowing your body to see them without making you feel absolutely miserable. Um, And over time um, helping re essentially rehab your microbiome Um, and so that can be really helpful and there are some strategies for instance with um, for instance beans there are some ways um, that you can um, cook beans or eat them Um, start with particular types of them um, which are going to help you digest them a little better so that you're not so gassy, bloated, feeling icky, but also getting some of the benefits of eating those as well. Um, Another situation that comes up with intolerances um, that I increasingly um, am seeing patients for are um, other um, something, for instance, histamine intolerance. So there are... are, um, in our foods, there are other substances and that have biologic properties to them. Um, so histamine is one of them. Histamine is a substance that our allergy cells make. It is preformed inside those little allergy cells, um, and it is um, the, the chemical that causes us to itch, to flush, to have, um, if it's released in our GI tract, to have stuff want to come out either direction. Um, it is. Um, Helpful if you are trying to fight off a parasitic infection, which is what its original purpose was, um, but not so helpful when too much of it is released day to day. Now, interestingly, though, particular foods have naturally occurring histamine, and or histamine is um, increases in the in its amounts in like leftover foods. Um, some other foods that would have higher histamine counts are like um, foods that are um fermented or um like sauerkraut and um pickles and things along those lines um and what can happen um and canned tuna and and other um things are also notorious for this as well um But this is again like a dose effect. Um, So what can happen is if you're eating a lot of foods that are high in histamine and you're already sensitive um, for other reasons, maybe you're on some medications that decrease your ability to um, break down histamine um, or maybe you have some um, imbalances in your gut bugs um, that then you can have too much of this histamine floating around and have symptoms related to that. Um, So this is something we're still kind of learning a little more about and how to best manage, but um, certainly we'll see. And there are similar um, and related um, intolerances that can come up. So salicylates, another thing. So salicylates are... um, we think of them more as substances we use as anti-inflammatories, so things like aspirin is a salicylate, um, but salicylic acid um, and related compounds are also naturally occurring in particular foods, and so some people can be more sensitive to those, and that um, would be something that sometimes may trigger like asthma-like symptoms. Um, So it can be really helpful if you are dealing with these sorts of um, issues or problems to work with a healthcare provider who is well-versed in them, whether it's an allergist, immunologist, a diet registered dietitian, um, a GI specialist. Um, there's, um, and, and sometimes you may have to kind of ask around to see who in your area is going to be that person that um, really kind of has an interest and is trying to help people um, deal with these with these symptoms. Um, one thing I kind of was alluding to um, that will come up, and this is something that um, that I'm seeing increasingly, and I'm trying to develop more comfort in identifying it and treating for it um, with my GI colleagues is something called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. Um, and so this is essentially that imbalance that we um, kind of have reached kind of a, a clinical situation where it meets like a diagnostic criteria um, and that is treated sometimes um, with particular antibiotics to help decrease the the bad bacteria and allow for those good bacteria to thrive. And we think that it's some of these, um, either SIBO or dysbiosis, which is um, on its way towards SIBO, um, that are implicated in one way, shape or form to maybe increase permeability or increased um, communication in that gut lining between what's inside the bowel, so the food and the partially digested food, the immune system and the microbiome, and then uh, the bloodstream on the other side. And so we think it's this increased communication between the two, um, which is also known kind of as leaky gut, that has some implication in the development and or progression of autoimmune conditions. And that's something that is still um, very much under investigation. And I am like always kind of watching um, the literature to see what's coming out. What I found really fascinating, um, there was an issue of one of our main allergy journals that came out a few months ago while I was still pregnant with Oliver and um, was talking about the implications of mom's diet and then the potential for baby to later on develop or be diagnosed with allergies, asthma, and other um, related conditions. And so we, you know, we're just kind of on um, the cusp of kind of getting um, more of this information to help us, you know, better advise patients, Um, but really kind of the the big picture things are as best as you are able to tolerate, Having a broad, diverse diet is really important. Um, We also know that um, getting diversity in foods can be really helpful, especially in plant-based foods. So fruits, vegetables, nuts, beans, seeds, herbs, spices, I think I caught all of them. Um, Whole grains, that's the other big one, um, can be really helpful because that's gonna help your gut bugs see all those different types of fibers um, and help those thrive and pump out more of those anti-inflammatory substances. We also have seen some data to support um, making sure that our diet is rich in omega-3 fatty acids. So these are what we more commonly think of as fish oil but are also found in plant sources like flax and chia. Um, and I know Jennifer's going to talk, I'm sure, more about that. Um, and also making sure that we um, uh, have enough vitamin D in our diet and or that we're getting um, that from, our, from the sunshine as well. Um, because there are implications in not having enough di- uh, vitamin D and um, omega-3s that um, we'll see more misbehaving in our immune system. Um, so that is the not so quick and dirty on um, things that can happen with foods. And if you have any questions, drop them below. Um, I can't provide personalized advice, but I can help try to point you in the right direction. Um, A couple resources I have found really helpful. Um, There is a book called Fiber Fueled, um, written by a GI doc, Uh, Will, I think it's Bill, his last name starts with the B and I am not sure how to pronounce it um, but that is a really great um, reference I will say though I did attempt to do the meal plan towards the back of the book um, he is a whole food plant-based um, physician and really promotes that um, we have not tr- we are more flexitarian in our household um, but my personal opinion the meal plan is a little too complicated <laughs> for my lifestyle it was delicious the food was very good it just was um it was a lot um and i i tried that while i was on maternity leave so i had more time to cook and shop and all those things and had some help and it still um, was a little too much um but some really good take-home points on the microbiome diversity um, implications and all of that that was really helpful um so that is one um really good resource another good resource is um I believe it's called Food Without Fear. I'll double check the title and if that, if I'm off on that, I'll post the, the title below. That one's written by um, uh, someone who's very involved in the food allergy scene, but she talks a lot about food allergy and things that mimic food allergy. Um, so that is another um, really great resource if you are trying to tease through um, all of this and having trouble kind of connecting with someone locally. Um, so if you want to learn kind of more about foods, implication of food in our Sjogren's journey, um, Jennifer Therani is going to have her talk on Saturday. Um, she is an excellent resource. Um, and then I will be up with sinuses on Saturday too. Everything's going to kick off um, tomorrow morning and um, kind of the little surprise um, that I think will be really helpful. So we have kind of the times laid out. Um, You don't have to tune in at those specific times. Everything's going to kind of load, both um, on the Facebook site and then on the login site, crunchyallergist.com backslash login, um, around 7 a.m. So you can watch those kind of at your leisure. If you are um, wanting to tune in to the question and answer sessions, um, you will get an announcement through the VIP portal with the Zoom login information. I'm gonna do my best to try to stream that in the Facebook group, um, but that is something I haven't been able to practice ahead. This is our first year. We are working through all the tech stuff and trying our best um, to bring the most value and education that we can to this, but understand this is you know our first time at this particular rodeo and um, so we're working through some of the hiccups with all of that Um, it's been a super fun learning experience um, but it's a learning experience nonetheless so um, with that in mind you will also see a link um, for a little survey afterwards and we would love 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 um, any feedback particularly constructive feedback um, because that's always, you know, a little more helpful than just the complaining. <laughs> so, um, I hope each of you has a wonderful day. I'm going to work on hydrating, um, up and, um, getting a few things done before I, um, finish up in the office. And I hope you have an awesome yeah, day. I can't I wait
1: for tomorrow. So awesome. excited. Wait Take care
0: tomorrow. So excited. Take care.
1: If you are curious about what you missed or want to purchase lifetime access to the first annual Sjogren's Summit recordings, you can find them over at www.crunchyallergist.com. And while you're there, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter and email list so you don't miss out on any future events like the workshop series I am planning on kicking off this summer. Thank you so much for joining us this week, and I look forward to meeting with you next week.